So Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. How you read the Bible has a great impact on the information you have when you come to understand the person of Jesus, what he said, who he is, what he stood for, what he believed. Uh, Some people, when it comes to the Bible, they see that they are opening a book a bit like Grimm's Fairy Tales. Remember Grimm's Fairy Tales? That uh, certain, I don't know why you read at bedtime. There's always an axe, there's always blood, there's always uh, a horse's head in the bed. And then you say, hope you enjoyed that, go to bed. Um, Perhaps the Bible has got gory stories in it of uh, swords being plunged into big people and flesh enveloping the sword, heads being chopped off and rolling down the cliff, a little man going up against a huge, tall person called Goliath. All those gory stories were the moral. Perhaps some people come to the Bible like Grimm's fairy tales. Other people, they say, no, it's not a made-up story. I see the Bible a bit more like a, bit more like a Haynes manual. The, uh, the author of the Haynes manuals died this week. But uh, you would pick up a Haynes manual off your shelf if you're okay as a man or a woman to get your hands dirty. There's a problem with your car, so you go and get the Haynes manual off the shelf and you have a go, you do your best, you do some damage, and then you call in the professionals. Perhaps that's uh, how some people view the Bible. When there's a problem with your life, you go and pick up that dusty book off the shelf, you blow off the dust off the top of it, you open up, you look for help, And when the issue is solved in your life, you close the book and it goes back on your shelf until next time. If you view the Bible like Grimm's fairy tales, if you view it like a a self-help manual in a mechanical kind of fashion, that will affect how you view and understand the person of Jesus Christ. Verses 17 to 20 of Matthew chapter 5, they tell us how Jesus viewed the Bible. These uh, sentences act like a foundation for what follows, beginning in verses 21 through to verse 48. A gateway and a foundation that show us how Jesus viewed the Bible, the scriptures, the Old Testament. That's all that he had at that time. Not even on an electronic tablet, not even in a book. These would be huge physical scrolls that would take effort and energy to unravel. These would take time to construct. They would come at great cost. And very few people could read them. Many people would listen to the Bible, to the scriptures, to the scrolls as they were unfolded and read. But Jesus explains his view of the Bible, verses 17 to 20. Very practically, verses 21 to 48, he then gives six examples of how these convictions, how they look in life, whether it's the issue of murder and friendship, whether it's the issue of purity and adultery, verses 27, whether it's the issue of divorce or what you say, verse 33. These six practical examples follow Jesus' convictions about how you should read the scriptures, how you should listen to them. 
It's so foundational that verse 18, Jesus will show us. Jesus views the scriptures as absolutely true. That's in sentence 18, absolutely true. But then verse 17, going a sentence backwards, Jesus says, the Bible's all about me. It's all about him, not about us. And then verses 19 and 20, if you see the Bible is true, if you see the Bible is all about Jesus and not about us, then it changes your life. That's in sentence 19 and 20. But let's look more closely at the first thing Jesus teaches us, sentence 18. The whole Bible, the whole of the scriptures is absolutely true. The whole Bible is true. That's a conviction of Jesus. Look at sentence 18. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now we need to read this carefully, sentence 18 and the sentence before it, sentence 17. Notice in sentence 17 you have this phrase, law and prophets, law and prophets. And then in sentence 18 you have the word law. Now those two phrases, a single word, verse 18, and these two or three words coming together, the law and the prophets, they are synonymous. They are the same thing, a different way of saying the same thing. And all commentators agree on that. All people with big heads and big minds, when they come to the Bible, they say Jesus is saying the same thing. He's not talking about two different things. Let me prove it to you. In John's Gospel, in John chapter 10, Jesus is quoting from Psalm 82, which is a hymn. It's poetry, it's a song. But Jesus says, does it not read in your law? Same word. And then he quotes the psalm. So Jesus has a way of understanding the Bible that when he uses the word law, it doesn't just mean the Ten Commandments. and It's not just a technical word. It's not just... It's not just a limited understanding. It can be the law of Moses, but more often than not, when he says the law, he means the whole of the scriptures, the whole of the Hebrew Bible. He says all of that. Does it not say so in the law? And so now when it comes to understanding verses 17 and 18 of Matthew 5, you can see Jesus has got the wide-angled lens on. He's looking at all the scrolls in the library, and he says, I'm going to tell you how I view the whole of the Hebrew Bible before Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and before the New Testament was written, all of the Old Testament, this is how I understand the law. That's what he's talking about. All of the history, all of the prophets to look forward, all of the songs, the Psalms, all of the Proverbs, the wise saying, all of the technical law, I will tell you how I understand that. And this is what he says, verse 18. This is a hard saying from Jesus. He says, the whole Bible is true. The whole Bible is true. The whole Bible is inspired. The whole Bible is spoken by God and is written down by men under the inspiration of God. And what does he say as he comes to these two great convictions about the Bible, about the law of God? He says this, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will disappear. He's talking about the inspiration of the Bible. When he comes to see the law that will be explained with these six practical examples in the Sermon on the Mount that will begin next week for us in verse 21, he says, well, notice the difference. Do you see this word that appears twice in verse 18? 
The word disappear, disappear, disappear. He says heaven and earth, the physical creation, that may pass away. But my word, God's word, the word of God, the law of God, the Hebrew Bible that he's looking back to, and in fact the whole of the Bible, that will never pass away. That is different. Nature, flowers, will they fade. Leaves fall and disintegrate and decompose. Stones, even stones under the right conditions can become sand. But there is something outside of nature, and it's the word of God. It's the word of God that is eternal. It's outside of time. It's beyond time. It's spoken by God, but it's written down by men. And it's got eternal significance and eternal weight. It's the best-selling book in the whole world. But it's more than that. It's supernatural. It's outside of nature. It's not created. It's not made up. It's not fiction. It's the word of God. God has spoken it. And by his spirit, men have written it down. And it's from the lips of Jesus, he's saying, this is not natural. Nature fades and falls, but my father's words are supernatural. They will never fail. They will never fade. And not just in some general way. Look at sentence 18 again. Two things Jesus says. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen. If you've got grey hairs more than me, you may remember, not a jot or tittle, it says in an old-fashioned version of the Bible. It's kind of poetic and helpful. Not a jot or tittle, not one single letter, not one part of a letter will fade or fall because it's the word of God. That's how Jesus looks back on the Hebrew Bible. It's not just inspired in a general way. God did his best and there might be a few mistakes here and there. Jesus is saying the whole Bible is inspired by God and his spirit inspired men who used their God-given imagination and skill to write down every single vowel and letter and part of a letter and it's a supernatural book and therefore it's true. It's divinely inspired and it's not just true. If it's the word of God, every sentence, word, part of a letter and letter, because it's the word of God, that means it has authority. It has authority. Look at what Jesus is saying now. Every part of it, poetry, law, prophecy, wise saying, narrative, every part of the Bible, we're faced with a choice. Will we stand above it? Will we sit above it? Will the posture of our hearts be above the Bible so we weed out the parts that we don't like and we agree with the parts we do like? Or will we bring our feeling, our thinking, our very being, our very selves under the authority of the Bible because of whose word it is? That's the simple choice we face. Will we be above it or will we be beneath its authority? And look at how Jesus expresses it in his own life. Jesus believed, Jesus believed that when God writes, his pen never slips and his ink never fades. When I was at the top end of middle school, uh, we went from the transition from pencil to pen. Do you remember that transition? These days it comes with great celebration and trumpets and fanfare because you get a pen license. We never had such things. We didn't have quills either, but we had pencils. And the intermediate step from a pencil to a proper fountain pen were these awful pens that were grey and they blue on one end and white on the other. 
They were the erasable pens that you would write and that the ink would just kind of spider. And then if you made a mistake, you'd flip it over, you'd get the white end, and then you'd do your best to kind of scrub out with increasing force as you engrave through the paper onto your table to get rid of this jolly ink because I made a mistake. And then you'd flip it over and get the blue end, and then you'd try to write on the bit where the erasable bit went on. And the ink would spider even worse, so my, my writing would just look as bad as it is. Jesus says, Jesus says the pen of God never slips. It's without error. The ink of God never fades. It's eternal. It's lasting. It's supernatural. God's pen is indelible. And Jesus believed this in his life. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is confronted with a temptation from the lips of Satan. What does he say? Well, I think it's a good idea not to do that. No, he says it is written. Jesus quotes the Bible. When Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees and the scribes, he says, it is written. He quotes the Bible. When Peter comes and draws his sword in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, what does Jesus say? Well, put that back. It looks a bit rusty. Make it a clean cut. Use a scalpel. No, he says, don't do that because the scriptures need to be fulfilled. It is written. Jesus believed that the whole Bible was the word of God. He believed that, but he didn't just believe it, he lived it. That's the difference. He believed it and he lived it, even on the cross. Even in the cross where Jesus could quite rightly be understood if he shouted out in anger. He speaks the Bible, Psalm 22. He speaks the Bible, Psalm 31. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. The Bible is inside of Jesus. He didn't just believe it as true and eternal and valuable. It was inside of him. He believed it and he acted it out. He believed in the authority of the Bible as the very basis for his life. And everything he did was in the power of the scripture. So how about you? When it comes to the Bible, what is your posture like? How often do you click on it or open it? Is it a Haynes manual to you that you blow off the dust or click on the app when there's trouble in your life? I, I, I need to pick me up. There's suffering in my life. Where's hope? I feel anxious. Where's joy? How do we use and understand the Bible? What about the parts that we find difficult at that point when you're reading the Bible? What happens? Do you skip over and think we've moved on socially? That's outdated. We've, we're past that in our understanding of the human condition. Or do you submit to its authority because of whose word it is? What about the issue of sexuality? What about the issue of ethics? Is Jesus' words in Matthew 5, are they true for us too? What about in our worst moments when we're having a really bad day? What comes out of us? Is it sweet? Is it biblical? Is it true? You see, you can have the verse 18 understanding of the Bible, that the word of God is true, that it's eternal, that it's lasting, that it's without error. And Jesus says, if you're just a verse 18 person with those convictions, you're just like the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees believed the Bible was true. The Pharisees believed that God spoke a word and it was eternal and lasting. And they came under its authority but that just makes you a Pharisee, friends. 
If you just look at verse 18, you are merely a Pharisee. And that's why we need verse 17. Look at verse 17. The Bible is not just true. In verse 17, Jesus says, the Bible is not about you. It's all about me. And that's the second point. The Bible is all about Jesus. It's not about us. The Bible is all about Jesus. It's not about us. Look at sentence 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. But to fulfill them. Jesus is telling us something new. And at this point, the Pharisees agreed with him in verse 18. But in verse 17, at verse 17, they'd want to stone him. At verse 17, Jesus gets far too close. Notice that word, verse 17, word fulfill. The word fulfill, it literally means to fill, full of meaning, to fill a cup to it's almost brimming over. One of those kind of champagne kind of uh, uh, things that you have at weddings where someone pours stuff in at the top and it overflows. That's the meaning of, of what Jesus is saying. I didn't just come to rubber stamp what the Old Testament said. I came to fulfill every single sentence so that it was overflowing with meaning and joy. When you understand who I am, says Jesus, you can't read the Old Testament in the same way. You can't throw it out as if it doesn't apply anymore. You need to understand who I am through understanding the stories of the Old Testament, to listening to the words of the prophets, to listening to the narrative. But every sentence points to me. You can't discard it, but neither can you read the Old Testament in the same way as if I hadn't come. All of the clean laws, they don't apply anymore because I am your cleanliness, says Jesus. The animal sacrifices, we don't need to do that. There's no blood on the floor here on a Sunday morning, A, because of health and safety, B, because of risk assessment, but more importantly, because Jesus is our great high priest and he's our sacrificial lamb. We don't need to do that anymore. But they point to Jesus. We can't discard the Old Testament. But neither can we read it just as if Jesus never came or as if we're still waiting for him because he's come. And so Jesus says, I've come to fulfill, to bring the fullness, to bring the meaning to the Old Testament. Every sentence is about me. If you are looking at God's big picture on a Friday morning with the ladies, or if you're listening with, on, on a Monday evening with the guys and the ladies, this is the picture from it. The Old Testament is a book of promise, a collection of books written over hundreds and thousands of years. But when Jesus came, we see the fulfillment, we see the cup overflowing, overflowing with meaning, filled to the brim. Because every sentence and every story whispers his name. And so Jesus has the audacity, but also the authority to say, every story in the Old Testament, every sacrifice pointed to me, every story whispers of me, every king, priest and prophet speak of me. And so it's not enough just to believe the Bible is an authoritative book. It's not enough just to believe it's true. We have to understand it's not about us. It's about him. And it's about his glory. The point of the ceremonies, the point of the sacrificial bread, the point of the sacrifice points to Jesus. The word from the lips and the quill of every prophet brings us to the ultimate truth of the ultimate and final prophet, King Jesus. The actions of the kings, the character of the kings, point us and show us the way with longing in their brokenness in the Old Testament to the truth of the final and the true king, King Jesus, who comes and walks the streets of Jerusalem 
And so when? When Jesus died for the sins of the world, when he was raised by his Father, when he ascended, before he ascended, there was the greatest Bible story the world has ever seen and the greatest Bible study the disciples ever heard in Luke 24. And what does Jesus say? As he looks back, he says, you don't understand why I came and who I am. Open up your scrolls. Every sentence, every story, every king, prophet, and priest points to me. And then their eyes were opened and their hearts burned. Wish I was there. So what? This does affect how you read the Bible. It must affect how you read the Bible. Let's be practical. If you read the story of Moses, there you are in Exodus in your times in the week that's gone. And you understand that Moses is working for liberation, liberation of the people of God, liberation for the Israelites. And they're in a real concrete place called Egypt with sand between toes. He's leading people through the Red Sea. And it's a great moral example of how we should, how we should work for people who are oppressed. That's a partial truth. If, it, if you just leave it there, you've missed the point of the story. If you're reading the story of David, King David, one of the greatest kings of Israel, and you think, what a great leader, what a great friend, what a close walk he had with God. I'm going to be like him. If you just read the story of Moses and it's about Moses and David and it's about David, you're missing the whole point of the Bible. That Jesus says, verse 17, the law and the prophets are about me and they whisper my name. If you just say, look what they did, I must do that too. And then God will reward me. You've missed the point. You're staying at verse 18. You need to reverse and go to verse 17. What you need to do is to read the story of Moses. And if you see the story of Moses pointing to a greater Moses, then you're beginning to see the truth. The ultimate Moses who leads us not just through water, not just through the Red Sea, but the ultimate Moses who led us through the ultimate storm and to freedom, through ultimate bondage of sin and death. We walk not through a physical uh, dry land, but because Jesus went through and was consumed by the sea of justice and God's wrath, we can now walk through unscathed. That's the story of Moses, pointing to the greater Moses, to Jesus Christ, who is, by the way, in Matthew 5, up a mountain, listening to the words of God, who causes us to be like shining salt and light into the world, like the face of Moses. These motifs are everywhere. But when you begin to see what the greater Moses did, then your heart will rejoice, not in Moses in Egypt, but in Jesus in Jerusalem. You're amazed by what Jesus did for you. You rejoice in it. There's depths that you have yet to plumb in the gospel. But if you just see Moses liberating a people, then you'll still be bound by your own fear, by your own insecurity, by your own anxiety, and you'll never be able to live like the true Moses, Jesus Christ. You never be able to live that righteous life. Every story whispers his name. The story of Ruth, the story of Esther, the story of David, the story of Moses. They all point to Jesus. And you and I are not the focus of the Bible. It's not a self-help book. It's a God-saturated book with Jesus at the very center. And we need to read it Christocentrically. That means with Jesus at the center. He's the hero of the whole Bible. And when you do that, verse 20 says, well, the Bible can change your life. It's not just true. It's not about us. It's all about him. And the Bible can change your life. Look at sentence 20 with me. Jesus now changes tone in sentence 19 and especially verse 20. 
and he starts to talk about righteousness and godliness and says, if your righteousness does not exceed, if it's not greater than that of the Pharisees, and what's he talking about here? Sentence 20 acts like an introduction to the, to the rest, the next section of the sermon, right through to chapter 6, verse 1, where the tone changes slightly. But Jesus says, sentence 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. If the truth of the gospel has come in, if you're a beatitude person, if you are someone who's aware of your spiritual poverty, chapter 5, verse 3, if you're a Christian, that's a shorthand way of saying it, then you will not be satisfied just with religiosity. You'll not be satisfied just with doing your best to keep God's standards because you've, you've, you've realized that you'll fail. There is a new realm way beyond religiosity, and it's called righteousness, a right standing with God. Because there are two ways to live. Matthew 6, verse 2. Look at the motivation of the Pharisees. What do they long for? In Matthew 6, verse 2 and Matthew 6, verse 7. The Pharisees give to the poor so they will be honoured by men. Verse 7. The Pharisees, why do they think that they will be heard for their many words? The Pharisees are interested in getting their award now. They want to be heard by men. They want to be seen by men and women wearing the right clothes, saying the right words. And Jesus says, that's religion. That's not righteousness. Your righteousness with me must be to a far higher degree to that because my standard is far higher than men and women. Religious people believe the Bible is all about them. It's all about verse 18. But verse 17 says, no, it's all about Jesus. You can try and keep the Ten Commandments and you will fail. And any outward religion, anything that is outside in, it's trying to fill that void that the Pharisees desperately felt. It's the wrong way. Christianity is not outside in, it's inside out. That's the Beatitudes. It's poverty of spirit, it's meekness, it's longing for a righteousness, Matthew 5 verse 6, longing for a righteousness that you know you don't have, that you know you can't earn. And so Christians and religious people can give to the poor, can pray, can fast, can be kind, can be salt and earth, but can be from two completely different motivational structures, says Jesus. It's either outside in because you want to impress people with your deeds and you want your reward now, or it's inside out from a new heart. Look at uh, verse 25 and 26 in Matthew 6. Don't worry about anything. Why, says Jesus, because your father feeds the birds of the air, and surely you know you're more valuable to him than they are. What's Jesus saying? Don't try harder. You don't need to try harder. You don't need to be fearful. You don't need to be anxious. Why? Because your father cares for you. Your father has set his love on you. You need to bask in that. You need to understand that. You need to plumb the depths of that. You need to live out of the resources of that. You don't need to strive to win God's favor because you already have it. And so you can live out of that resource, live out of that wellspring, live out of that joy. That's what motivates Christians. My father loves me, and I don't care if anyone sees what I do. But a religious person doesn't know that. 
And so they want to fill up the void by doing as much good as they can, like the Pharisees did with their many words, with their generosity, giving money in public so they could be seen by men and women. So you need to understand what God has done for you. You need to understand that you have a Father in heaven who loves you. Because the Bible is all about him, it's not about you and me. So how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you read the Bible so it's all about him and not about you and me? A few years ago, someone asked me uh, this question. How, um, how do you get to play in this venue? How do you get to play in the Royal Abbot Hall? I said, well, I think it's practice. You need a lot of gifts. You need a lot of talent, whatever instrument it is, whether it's a human voice or an instrument that you want to play. But how do you get to play in the Royal Abbot Hall? I think it's practice, practice, and a lot more practice, as well as some skill. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, Peter says exactly what Jesus is saying in the sentences we've looked at this morning. He says, you can trust the Bible. The Spirit of Christ in the prophets spoke of the grace that was going to come to you. It's Peter's version of his view of the understanding of the Old Testament. It's inspired by God and it's true and you can trust it. The prophets predicted that Jesus would come and he would suffer and he would die. And then at the end of 1 Peter 1 verse 12 it says, These things that have been told to you, the gospel, even angels long to look into these things. The gospel is so remarkable that even the angelic beings, they desire, that's the word there, they desire, they are obsessed, that's the word, epithemeo, they're obsessing over the gospel. They're not thinking, what do I do next? Who can I go and help? The angels spend their time obsessing over the glory and the majesty and the truthfulness of the gospel. There's endless wonders. They're always seeing new things. They're just enjoying it. Like a grandparent or a first-time parent saying, do you want to see, never say yes, do you want to see a few photos of my new grandson or daughter? You'll be there for hours. Unless you've got hours, then enjoy it. They're scrolling and scrolling through their photos and there's something joyous in that. They're obsessing over this new joy in their life. Now the angels, what do they obsess over? The gospel. Jesus Christ, who died, was raised, who ascended, who rules. The Bible's all about him. Friends, you need to memorize the gospel. You need to bathe in the gospel. It's uh, not a gate, it's a garden, sings Colin Buchanan in a wonderful song. Bathe in the gospel. It's what the angels love and long to do. They never get tired of understanding the gospel, because it's a bottomless joy. There's treasures that need to be mined about the gospel. The gospel is all we need. You're struggling with anger. Ultimately, that's an issue of understanding the gospel. You're struggling to forgive someone. You need to understand the gospel that you've been forgiven much. How can you not forgive another person? You need to look and gaze and practice and practice and practice meditating on the gospel. They're always looking into it. There's a phrase from uh, George Herbert. He says, the gospel will make your joys turn to weeping and your griefs turn to singing. The gospel will give you everything you need. 
because it's all about him. It's not about you. And that changes everything. Let's pray.